Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Building the Machine, the new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Over these 12 episodes, we're going to bring you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you're seeing how the machine was constructed, all the highs and lows, and the legacy that remains. Each week, we're bringing you a new episode focusing on a single year from 1969 to 1979. If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, you're going to enjoy the chance to experience the story as if you were there and learn more about the names and events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. If you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, this will be a fun blast from the past. This is episode six, a disappointment, not a dynasty. I'm Chad Dotson, and joining me now to discuss 1974, an important year in the Big Red Machine, is Bill Lack. How are you today, Bill? I'm good. I'm good. This is this is just a year that, that increases the questions about how this team would be remembered. We have hinted about it over the first five episodes of this series, that the team was beginning to uh, have lots of questions around them, because we remember them in retrospect as the Big Red Machine. It wasn't always such. And 1974 was kind of the apex of the questions surrounding Cincinnati. Let's talk about, as we do every episode, what was going on in the world at the time in 1974. The world population reached 4 billion people that year. Heiress Patty Hearst was kidnapped outside her Berkeley, California apartment by the Symbionese Liberation Army. Do you remember the whole Patty Hearst story, Bill? Yeah, I really do. Uh, I, I was not in California, though. I was not anywhere. I was not a part of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Okay, All right. you uh, were not uh, in that particular branch of the military. No. Okay, good. I just I just want to get my disclaimer in there. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. The Rubik's Cube was invented in 1974. Richard Nixon resigned, and Gerald Ford was sworn in as President of the United States. And that was, uh, we talked last week about that taking up a lot of the oxygen in the room, the Watergate scandal, and that was uh, obviously a big moment in, in American history, right? Yeah, this was shortly after the articles of impeachment had been filed, and then Ford granted Nixon full free, or full free and absolute pardon for all crimes or possible crimes, and, and it probably ended up costing Gerald Ford the election in 1976. Absolutely. Bill, you're the music guy. I'm going to let you run us through what happened in the world of music in 1974. Bob Dylan and the band kicked off a 40-date concert tour, and it was Dylan's first time out on the road since 66. The Ramones played their first concert in New York City. The Moody Blues disbanded. And the biggest hit singles that year were Kung Fu Fighting by Carl Douglas, which I remember, Waterloo by ABBA, which I do not remember, and The Joker by Steve Miller Band, which I detest. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question, Bill, because 74, I was a little young to remember. Was everybody actually kung fu fighting? Yes, it was rampant in the streets. Oh, wow. Strange but time. I, I, I got a couple more things here. Sure, yeah. Kiss and Rush both released their first albums that year. Sonny and Cher divorced. Van Halen played their first gig on Sunset Strip. And some of the other singles released that year were The Way We Were by Barbara Streisand, Love Theme by Barry White, Dancing Machine by the Jackson 5, The Locomotion by Grand Funk Railroad, and Band on the Run by Paul McCartney and Wings. Big year in the world of music. In the world of movies, the highest grossing film of the year was not the Best Picture winner, but it was a film that uh, has... Uh, made an impact on society and certainly in the 
that both Bill and I enjoy. Blazing Saddles, the Mel Brooks comedy starring Gene Wilder. Now, did you see Blazing Saddles when it came out in theaters, Bill? I saw it 12 to 15 times in the theater. I love this movie. It's one of my top two or three comedy movies of all time. And and it's Gene Wilder and Clavon Little. You got to give Clavon Little his, his his props because he was amazing. And and the funny thing, the back there's kind of a backstory to this. Gene Wilder was not the original person to play the Waco Kid. It was it was an old actor, but he had an alcohol problem, and they dropped him after like one day of filming. And the only reason, and the only way that Gene Wilder agreed to do this was if Mel Brooks agreed to film Young Frankenstein next. And that also came out this year. Yeah, yeah. Big year for Mel Brooks and, and Gene Wilder, certainly. Uh, Blazing Saddles. If you've not seen it, you should go see it, but be prepared. It's not a film that would be released in 2020. Yeah, they couldn't. Mel Brooks has said many times they'd never be allowed to make this movie today. Yeah. But it, no one is spared uh, uh, humor at their expense in this in this film. So it's really funny. Best Picture from 1974 was The Godfather Part Two. Bobby De Niro joins Al Pacino in the uh, Francis Ford Coppola saga. Other significant releases that year, uh, Chinatown, Roman Polanski's uh, film starring Jack Nicholson. That makes no sense uh, for most of it, but still is a great, great, great movie. The Longest Yard with the immortal Burt Reynolds. I love that movie. Great movie, great movie. The Man with the (laughs) Golden Gun, James Bond. uh, Scaramanga, one of the better uh, villains in uh, James Bond history. And, and you and I, you and I are both big Bond fans, and and I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of any of the Roger Moore Bonds movies. This one with tattoo in it, and uh, not a fan of this movie. Hervé Villachez, yes. Uh, you know, I rewatched it not too long ago with my son, and it was a little better than I remembered, but it's not great. And no, we're not. I, I'm like you. I'm not a Roger Moore fan as Bond. It got too silly and campy for most of that. Uh, yep. Also uh, released that year, The Conversation, another Francis Ford Coppola movie uh, starring Gene Hackman. This movie I didn't see till last year, and hard to believe it was released the same year as The Godfather because it's an outstanding, really an amazing movie about a, a, a guy who's sort of a surveillance expert, Gene Hackman, and really, really good. Uh, any other thoughts on movies from 74, Bill? Yeah, uh, Death Wish with Charles Bronson came out that year. The Towering Inferno came out that year, the first real disaster movie if you don't count the airport movies. And then John Wayne released McHugh that year where he wasn't a cowboy and you know, kind of lost me there. Top rated shows in television, 1974. And these are some uh, all time classics, really all in the family. We've mentioned that just about every year. That was a, a stalwart at the top of the ratings in the seventies. Sanford and son underrated comedy Chico and the man, the Jeffersons, a spinoff of all of the family mash, the Waltons and Hawaii Five O. Now, which, what were the best of those shows, Bill? Mash, probably, but I, I liked the old Hawaii Five O, and I, I thought Sanford Son was really funny. Debut that year of Happy Days, uh, which uh, put uh, Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock back on the charts. And now, Happy Days is one that I, I, I one of the first shows that I remember ever seeing on television. Richie Cunningham and Arthur Fonzarelli. Good Times debuted that year. Another show that I remember. Another spinoff. Another spinoff. Spinoff from? Maud, which was a spinoff from? All in the Family. There you go. All right. Little House on the Prairie debuted that year. The Rockford Files. I know that's one of your favorites, the Rockford Files. Am I right? You're a big James Garner guy? 
Actually, I do like James Garner. I wasn't a huge Rockford fan. My wife was a huge Rockford Files guy, and that's where Tom Selleck really got his start on television ah. in the later years of the Rockford Files. Future Magnum P.I. And the greatest cartoon in the history of cartoons, or maybe I'm overstating it, Hong Kong Fooey debuted that year. I do not remember Hong Kong Fooey. Oh, man. The kids around the schoolyard loved Hong Kong Fooey. Number one super guy. Were they kung fu fighting? <laughs> they were, as a matter of fact. It's ironic that that came out that year. Probably that's the reason. Going off the year air that year, the Brady Bunch, the Partridge Family, Monty Python's Flying Circus. But it wasn't a, such a bad thing that the Flying Circus went off the air, was it, Bill? No, because they started making movies, and they did the superb Monty Python and the Holy Grail in 75. Absolutely. Another one that if you have not seen, I believe it's on Netflix now, you... Let's talk about sports, and I know the first one here is one you're going to have some thoughts on. The Rumble in the Jungle took place in 1974, and Kinshasa Zaire, Muhammad Ali, knocked out George Foreman in eight rounds to regain the heavyweight title, and uh, the, the title that had been stripped from him seven years earlier, and just a classic, if you're a fan of boxing or just a fan of sports, it's a classic moment in sports history. Rope-a-dope. The rope-a-dope strategy that Muhammad Ali used. And That's right. Just, Fantastic. And, you, and if, you, if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen it, I'm sure you can watch it on YouTube or something. Just look at the punches that Ali is when he's laying on the ropes. The Fort hit Foreman is hitting him, especially in the early rounds, to his arms and his kidneys and his sides, and he's just wailing on him. And he's just Ali's just covered up, taking the punches. Every now and again, he'd drop his gloves and talk to him or stick his tongue out at him or something, and he just wore him down. The Miami Dolphins defeated the Minnesota Vikings to win their second straight Super Bowl. The Philadelphia Flyers defeated the Boston Bruins to win the Stanley Cup. West Germany defeated the Netherlands to win the World Cup in Bill's favorite sport. And then a, a baseball moment that has gone down in history. The Cleveland Indians held their 10-cent beer night for a game against the Texas Rangers at Old Cleveland Municipal Stadium. And mayhem and violence fueled by the alcohol spread it from the stands onto the field, and Cleveland was forced to forfeit a classic uh, 10 cent beer night. Would they think they need to bring that back at Great American Ballpark, Bill? I would love for to have them 10 cent beer night. Question though, the disco night, that was a different thing, a different year, wasn't it? Disco demolition night. Yeah, that was later in the 70s. I think maybe later, next, the following year or the year after. Yeah. Was that the Indians or was that the White Sox? Do you remember? I think it was uh, the White Sox now that you mentioned. I was thinking the Indians in my head when I was reading this, but no, I think it, it was definitely the White Sox. Born in 1974, television personalities Jimmy Fallon and Ryan Seacrest, Seacrest in Jenna Fisher and Ed Helms. And if you don't know who that is, uh, you're not a teenager in 2020. Pam Beasley and Andy Bernard, the Nard Dog from The Office. Several Academy Award winning actors born in 1974. Leonardo DiCaprio, Christian Bale, Olivia Coleman, Joaquin Phoenix. Who's a, Olivia Coleman? I don't know who that is. She won uh, Best Actress last year, I say last year, I should say in 2019, for The Favorite. And she plays uh, the queen now in the, the movie uh, The Crown on Netflix, or the show The Crown Oh, okay, on Netflix. okay. I know who she is now. Yep, She's yep, yep. The, yeah, she won for an outstanding uh, movie, uh, the, uh, the Favorite, last year, which she was really good playing a queen. NBA Hall of Famer Steve Nash was born in 1974, singer Alanis Morissette. Ironic that he was born in 1974. Um, overrated shortstop Derek Jeter. Am I going to get any f feedback on that, Bill? Overrated no. shortstop. 
He was great. We'll, we'll, actually, we'll talk about. He will come up later in this broad podcast. He will amazingly. Uh, great shortstop, Hall of Famer, completely overrated, and most importantly, former Cincinnati Red Miguel Cairo was born in 1974. Maybe the worst hitter to ever play for the Cincinnati Reds. You think so? Nah, that's probably exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> Do you remember Willie Tavares? <laughs> uh, tell us about uh, who passed away in 1974, if you would, Bill. Uh, jazz legend Duke Ellington passed away at the age of 75. TV legend Ed Sullivan, uh, American aviator, pioneer, Charles Lindbergh, and Mama Cass Elliott of the Mamas and the Papas died in her sleep at age 32 in London. There's always a young uh, musician dying in each of these episodes, Bill. It's uh, startling. Yeah, she, she actually lived five years longer than the what seems to be the mean. Right, age 27. Okay, let's get to the Cincinnati Reds in 1974. And to do that, we have to kind of set up where they were the previous season. Of course, if you remember from the last episode, the uh, Pete Rose was the National League's most valuable player. The Reds were 99-63 and 63 after a furious second-half rally in the season. And they end up being upset by the New York Mets in the National League Championship Series. So, And I was upset, too. A little bit, a little bit. Talk to us about what happened uh, preseason and... Uh, and when where the Reds were, Bill? Well, I think I think the front office felt like they had to make some changes. Um, I think it was pretty apparent that Bobby Tolan wasn't going to be with the team when they when they came to spring training in '74. They traded Bobby Tolan and Dave Tomlin to San Diego for Clay Kirby, the starter who they expected to jump right into the rotation. They traded Ross Grimsley and somebody named Wally Williams to the Orioles for Merv Rettman and Junior Kennedy. Wouldn't end up being a really good deal. Grimsley Cohen went 18 for Baltimore in 74, and he'd win 20 for the Expos in 78. But Sparky really had a problem with this kid, and, and apparently Grimsley was one that always challenged the rules. And after the 73 season, Anderson suggested to the front office that they move him, and, and nobody in the front office or the coaching staff disagreed. And... Housem made the deal. The Reds, the Reds thought that Rettman could contend for an outfield position on this team, and it, this turns out to be one of Housem's worst deals he ever made. Uh, in February, the Reds traded Denny Mankey back to Houston for Pat Darcy, who we will talk about off and on for the next few seasons. And then there was one big move, and I'll let you talk about that one. Sure thing, yeah. The Maybe the biggest pickup of the 1974 offseason. Al Michaels was the Reds' play-by-play uh, -play broadcaster, and he asked for a, a significant raise after the 1973 season. And the Reds just uh, said, well, no, we already, we've already discussed the Reds' unwillingness to spend much money on the players. And so, but Al Michaels was very popular. The Reds uh, had, to, had to fill the booth. 220 applicants sent their... Uh, sent their uh, reels in to, to be listened to and to apply for the job. And 31-year-old Marty Brenneman was selected. Now, Marty had been broadcasting games in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia with the AAA Tidewater Tides and the Virginia Squires. And those of you that listened to Marty later in his career would definitely be surprised to know that Marty was described in the Cincinnati Inquirer as an on-air cheerleader, or in his own words, as an unmitigated homer. And, uh, and, and he was that way when he joined the Reds. He was sort of a, a home team guy. And uh, it didn't take long for Marty to alter that style. One day he, he was walking through the clubhouse and said something about how we had a great win yesterday. And 
Jack Billingham, Red's pitcher, kind of challenged him. How many hits did you have? What's this wee business? And after that, Marty changed the way he broadcasted, and uh, the Hall of Fame was the ultimate uh, ending point. Now, one of my favorite uh, stories is early in 74, Marty arrives uh, in Cincinnati and travels up I-75 up to Dayton because the Reds offseason, the media caravan was there. And uh, Marty was still sort of a minor league guy. And one of his first duties in Dayton was to have some publicity stills, some photographs taken at a local photo studio. He opened the door there at the studio in Dayton and saw Joe Nuxall sitting there and kind of got a little little nervous. Uh, you know, Joe uh, had been a fine Reds player. Obviously, we all know Joe Nuxall and had been with the Reds broadcast team since 67. So Marty would be the fifth different partner that Joe would have in his eight years. And Marty walked up to him and, and held his hand out to shake it and said, um, I have your baseball card. And so that was kind of a legendary partnership born. And from that point on, Bill, Marty and Joe uh, were kind of a thing around Cincinnati, weren't they? Well, and that's you, you said it exactly the way people remember it, Marty and Joe. It, it, it's, it's one phrase. It's not two names. It's one phrase, Marty and Joe. And it extended from everything from starting with the Reds broadcast to television commercials to, you know, public appearances. And, and they were they were the team. Uh, they were, you know, and, and Marty, it was the, it, it, yeah, and it's like you said, it's hard to believe that he was uh, considered a homer because he was the play-by-play guy. He was the laid-back guy. He was the one that always gave you the big picture. And Joe was the one yelling, get out of here, get out of here, as the ball headed towards the fence. Yeah, it was a perfect combination, really, of the smooth play-by-play guy, describes the action crisply, perfectly, with the guy who sometimes mispronounced a name. You know, didn't always, sometimes would go quiet for uh, moments at a time, but you always knew that Joe was uh, going to be uh, cheering for the team. He was the, he was the fan in the, in the booth and it was just a perfect partnership. And that's where it began 1974. Yeah. Now, it's, it's funny. You mentioned the, the, the silence. How many of us have been driving in the car when it was Marty and Joe and you'd click the game on and it'd be quiet. And you're driving along, and you're, and all of a sudden you're reaching down, and you're messing with the volume, and you're messing with the channel, you know, making sure that you're on the right spot, that you got the thing turned up, because nobody's saying anything. And then, you know, 15 seconds later, and that one's outside, ball two. <laughs> <laughs> I remember playing wiffle ball in the backyard, and we'd have a, a radio on the, for those of you that can remember what a radio is, on the uh, porch as we were playing. And I remember we, all the time, we just have to stop. <laughs> and wait a minute, is, the, is something wrong? Did our batteries die? What's going on over there? Because Joe would just—if he didn't have anything to say, he wouldn't—he wouldn't talk. So Marty and Joe. Well, either that, or he was taking a, a, a sip of his cold one. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Did, did Joe dropped a beer on my wife's head at the at Riverfront Stadium one time? <laughs> well, we've all done that, Bill. Well, no, you haven't ever dropped a beer on my <laughs> wife's head. It felt true. Linda was sitting in the green seats, and it fell out, and it came out of the booth. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious! And Joe leaned out and went, "I'm so sorry." <laughs> and I believe both of us uh, got a, you got a chance to meet uh, Joe at one point before he died, didn't you? I only I only met Joe once, and it was just very very brief. I wouldn't even really call it meeting him. I've I've met Marty once or twice. Yeah, I met Joe uh, once towards the end, and he could not have been. It was a real brief meeting as well. But just he acted like he was so pleased to to meet me. He didn't know who I was, and it was really, it was really a great guy. So a legendary partnership born in 1974. 
Bill, I want to talk, the thing we talk about every spring training seems like is uh, the contract situation with these one-year deals and, and the Reds having to renegotiate every year. What happened to the contract situation as the Reds approached spring training in 1974? Well, like you said, it, it's funny how you have to talk about this, you know, looking back as now it's, you know, you, there, it's never a consideration. Uh, but uh, most of the players signed quickly. Uh, Bench had a down year in 73. He didn't come anywhere close to his 72 numbers, and he hated the contract negotiations anyway. So he just signed a blank contract and sent it back. Uh, it's estimated that he was paid between 125 and 150,000, according to Red Leg Dynasty. Uh, baseball Reference had him at 115 that year. Morgan signed at 132.5, according to Red Leg Dynasty. Baseball Reference has him at 100. Pete, after winning the, the uh, MVP in 73, he got a $36,000 raise. It took him to 155. Baseball Reference says it's 160. So who knows? Because at this point, the other thing I want to tell you, remind, remind people, or if you weren't alive at the time, salaries were not public information then the way they are now. They were trying to, you know, this was the clubs trying to keep them as secret as they could. And they talk about this in ball four. That way they can't, the players can't negotiate from strength, you know, I had a better year than so and so, and you're paying him blah blah blah, and and so these num- some of these numbers are pretty gray. Right, teams actively discouraged and some, and often punished players for uh, talking about their their salary. So again, a different time. It was also the first year of salary arbitration, and the Reds didn't care for that, did they, Bill? No, Housem hated it. Uh, he, he didn't think that anybody else should be able to destroy the salary structure that they'd established for their stars. You know, Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, and Tony Perez. Because if one of them got a huge increase, it could cascade down and bring the other ones up. Perez that year threatened to take the Reds to arbitration, so the Reds just offered him a 20% raise, and it took him up to about $100,000. The season began in 74, uh, as we got to spring training, with still quite a bit of optimism. And we're going to talk about how, whether that dissipated by the end of the year or uh, more question marks came into it. But again, the Reds had finished with 99 wins, and they really felt like they were the best team in the league in 73, despite how it, it ended. And Sparky called the 74 team his best club. He said it was going to be his best club. And the Reds kind of felt like they had a perfect combination of established stars, young players. Uh, they believed that George Foster, who'd had a solid year at AAA in 73, was ready. They believe that uh, Danny Dreeson was ready to take another step forward, and King Griffey as well. And, uh, you know, there were future pieces of the Big Red Machine that were going to end up being important that were not far behind. Uh, Will McEnany, Raleigh Eastwick, Pat Zachary, uh, Doug Flynn, Manny Sarmiento, and uh, Santo Alcala, uh, not far behind. So uh, they did feel like it was a good club and that they were ready to compete once again, but they had concerns as well, didn't they? Yeah, they were worried about the pitching. Gary Nolan's arm didn't respond to his arm surgery in 73, and he'd end up having to have surgery again in 74 to remove some bone spurs, and he wouldn't pitch at all in 74. Roger Nelson, his arm troubles would continue. He'd be limited to 12 starts this year and only 85 innings. So the Reds went into the season with a rotation of Jack Billingham, Don Gullett, Clay Kirby, and Freddie Norman. Which is a pretty good quartet, but also some serious uh, question marks there, especially given given health concerns. Um, the outfield has been, every spring train as well, has been something that the Reds really were trying to feel their way around. And they ultimately uh, landed on a group uh, later in the uh, the 70s, I guess, in the following year. But uh, still, that going into spring training, that wasn't, that wasn't set in stone, was it? 
No, it really wasn't. And it's kind of interesting. I mean, they knew it was going to be Rose in left field, and they, and they thought it would probably be Foster and or, Griff, and or Griffey in center and right field. It would be Geronimo and Rettman. And if you remember when they got Geronimo, one of the things they liked about him was they thought he could cover center field. And this is the second year in a row that they've kind of slotted him into right field. And, and I, I, in retrospect, I, I don't know what their thinking was. And I have a hard time believing that they thought either Foster or Griffey was going to be a better defensive center fielder than Geronimo. But they, they were looking at him or Rettman in, in right field, at least coming out of spring training. Yeah, it was sort of like the, the presence of Pete Rose in the outfield mix kind of screwed things up a little bit because you're right, uh, George Foster and King Griffey would end up being corner outfielders for the Big Red Machine, and Cesar Geronimo would be a gold-glove winning center fielder. I'm not sure how they thought that Cesar Geronimo um, would be, not be better than Foster or Griffey, and, and I don't know how Merv Rettman was even in the conversation, uh, but he had a cool name. So The season began for the Cincinnati Reds on April 4th, and there was a pretty big question. They were set to play the Braves, and it was at Riverfront Stadium because, as you know, the Reds open at home. And the big question was, would Hank Aaron actually play in this series? Why was that a big question, and how was it resolved, Bill? There was a big question because Aaron was within one home run of, of tying Babe Ruth's record at this point of 7-14. And there had been weeks of speculation that, he, that the Braves would hold him out for the whole series so that he could take care of this at home. They were going home to play the Dodgers the following week. Uh, finally, Bowie Coon stuck his big nose in the thing again. And he required Aaron to play. And at least, I think if I remember right, they required him to play at least two games in the opening series, but I don't remember that for sure. But he did require him to play in the opening series. And Bowie Kuhn, of course, baseball's commissioner, who demanded that uh, Hank Aaron play. Um, nowadays, the player would probably say, you can take a hike. I'll do what I want to do. But it was a different time. Opening day, Carl, Carl Morton started for the Braves and Jack Billingham for Cincinnati in the top of the first with two on and one out. On a 3-1 pitch, Hank Aaron did tie that record in the very first inning, uh, a record that many had said would never be broken, uh, tying Babe Ruth's career home run record with 714 long balls. And pretty uh, pretty titanic moment there, huh? Oh, yeah. It was it was on the front page of every paper in the country, I believe. And it was also the very first regular season inning for Marty and Joe. And, and Marty called the home run that tied the record, and after the inning ended, he leaned back, and uh, Joe looked over at him and says, well, what are you going to do for an encore after that, buddy? And, uh, you know, there were plenty of encores in upcoming years. Now, uh, later in, uh, or the, the following week, I guess, this was on a Thursday, and the following Monday, uh, Hank Aaron would actually break that record with the home run off uh, Los Angeles' Al Dowling, and that was in Atlanta. And uh, you all remember the, the video of that. I'm sure you've seen it uh, with the, the players or the fans running out of the stands to Pat him on the back, and a couple of uh, future Reds managers were actually on the field there, weren't they? Or at least in the stadium. Yeah, Dusty Baker was in the on-deck circle, and Davey Johnson uh, was in the dugout. Yeah, so so a Reds connection even in a Braves-Dodgers game in the mid-'70s. Now back to opening day, the Reds were trailing 6-2 to two in the bottom of the ninth. Had two on and one out. Tony Perez homered off Phil Necro. And that brought the Reds back within one. And then in the ninth, Rose doubled off uh, Necro to tie the game. And it stayed that way until the bottom of the 11th when Pete Rose doubled, scored on a wild pitch to Cesar Geronimo. And the Reds went 7-6. to six. So the, uh, largely to the uh, six innings of scoreless relief by the Reds' bullpen. And, and Clay Carroll got the win. So 99-win team the year before. And they start out 
well, but uh, didn't didn't stay hot necessarily, did they? No, they kind of struggled in April. They were only ten and nine, and they were in third place, and they were five games back. And the Dodgers came out like a house of fire. Uh, they they went sixteen and five in April. So again, just like uh, the year before, the Reds are kind of digging a little bit of a hole. And who is it at the top? The Dodgers. They're, they're big rivals in the 70s. The hated Los Angeles Dodgers. Absolutely. In May, things started to pick up a little bit for the Reds, um, but uh, an, an instance where you can tell that there were, things weren't exactly going that well. Freddie Norman struck out 13, but still loses to the Cardinals 1-0. Uh, and, and the only run came on a Fred Norman error in the ninth. And so uh, that's... Uh, at some point here, you're starting to think, uh-oh, hey, what's going on with this year? That's a, that's a classic one. But a few days later, Norman and Clay Kirby both threw complete game wins uh, versus the Astros in a doubleheader. Bill, tell us about that. Yeah, Freddie Norman won the first game with a 5 nothing complete game shutout. Uh, Concepcion and Rettman, Davey Concepcion and Rettman had homered. Bill Plummer went two for three. That didn't happen too often. And then Clay Kirby throws a complete game. Game two-hitter in the second game, and he beat Don Wilson 4-2. to two. Rettman homered in this game also. Uh, Cesar Geronimo had three hits. And by the, end of the, by the end of May, the Reds were playing better ball. They were 17-10. and 10. But the Dodgers went 19-8 and eight in May. So at the end of May, the Reds are 27-19, and 19 and they're seven games back. That's pretty tough to be uh, eight games over 500 and still be that far behind the leaders in the division. After uh, two months. After two months, yeah, digging, digging a hole just like they had in 73 that they did climb out of. We'll see what happens in 74. Tell us about the draft that happened to that June, Bill. Their first-round draft pick was a guy named Steve Reed. And as we'll find as we move along here in the 70s, they didn't have real good luck with the first-rounders. This guy never makes the big leagues. Uh, two guys that they did draft that year that did play, you know, have have. Good careers with, in baseball were Mike Lacoste, who had a couple good years for the Reds, and Ronnie Oster, who's a Cincinnati kid and would be on the 1990 team that wins the World Championship. And tw- in the 25th round, they picked a guy named Scott Burke, who played football at Oklahoma State. And he was also picked in the ninth round of the NFL draft, and he ended up playing a year for the Bengals. <laughs> so the Reds picked a Bengals player. Nice. 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 In June, later in June, June 8th, Bill Plummer, we just mentioned him, and, and, and Bill commented, well, that was pretty rare that he went two for three in the game. Well, June 8th, Bill Plummer hit two home runs off Steve Carlton, maybe the best pitcher on planet Earth at the time, and those were the only two home runs that Plummer hit all season long. The Reds, of course, lost 6-5 that day. Johnny Bench played third base. He also homered, and that was a, a continuation of what we'd seen throughout the early 70s where the Reds needed Johnny Bench's bat in the lineup, but uh, they had to pick some days they could get him out from behind the plate, and I think uh, Sparky was pretty creative about doing that, and it's something we don't see too often these days, because I guess because there's not very many outstanding offensive players that play catcher anymore, but I'm surprised you don't see more of that with uh, some of the better hitting catchers. Keep that guy in the lineup. Yeah, Bench played Bench played 36 games and started 30 of them at third base that year, and he played five games at first base. Yeah, so there you go. You know, you... you Starting catchers, primary catchers this year, 137 games that bench played at catcher. That's a pretty, you know, a pretty good number for most catchers these days. Maybe even fewer, but when you consider you can get him in the lineup another 40 times at other positions, that's pretty good. Yeah, you, you want to get that Hall of Fame bat in the lineup as often as you possibly can. As we move into June 23rd here, 
The Reds have a doubleheader against Atlanta, and they're still seven games out. They're, they're nine over at the time, but still seven games out of first. Uh, they do sweep a Sunday doubleheader from the Braves there, though. Won the first game 4-2. to two. Roger Nelson got that win. Clay Carroll tossed a couple of scoreless frames. Joe Morgan homered, went 3-4. for four. And what was interesting at that time was uh, the way they were constructing that lineup, Bill. Did this surprise you as much as I did that Cesar Geronimo was hitting uh, second in both games? You wonder whether I mean whether it was a speed thing or, or what the the actual thinking was there, but yeah, my guess is he didn't hit second too many times in his career. Yeah, I know. with the Reds. And once the grade eight became a thing, he was uh, lower in the order, but still, Reds won the second game of that doubleheader in twelve innings, two to one. Tony Perez with a with a home run to win, and Clay Kirby threw ten innings, allowing only an unearned run, something you don't see these days. Pedro Borbon did get the win there, so. Uh, and Ben started both games of that doubleheader at third base. Now, so uh, you've told us the end of April, end of June, or end of May, the end of June, it's not much different, is it? No, it really isn't. Uh, the Dodgers had gone 16 and 10 in June. They were sitting at 52 and 24. The Reds had gone 17 and 12. And they were 44 and 31 on the season, but they were still seven and a half games back. Dodgers are trying to run away with it. July 10th, the Reds lost to the Cubs 11-3 at uh, Wrigley, which is significant uh, because Will McEnany, just his fourth major league appearance, gave up six runs in one inning. Uh, so that was kind of the low water mark in 1974 for the Reds. July 10th, uh, low water mark, not necessarily, but they were 10 and a half games out. So that was the, the most they were out, and they were about to get uh, kind of hot, weren't they? Yeah, from July 7th, my birthday, matter of fact, through September the 14th, the Reds would go 42-19. and 19. That's playing some pretty good baseball. That's not bad. Let's talk about a week later, uh, July 14th, because that has some, uh, some correlation to recent Reds history. The Reds and Pirates kind of got into it a little bit, didn't they? Yeah, they had a mild disagreement in a, in a two-to-one Pittsburgh win, and, and it turned out to be it was the second game of a doubleheader, and the Reds had won the first, the first game. And in the fourth inning, Billingham beans Bruce Keeson, the Pirates pitcher, Jack Billingham, and the bench is empty. And just as things were calming down, Sparky stepped on Ed Kirkpatrick, one of the Pirates' foot, who shoved Sparky Anderson. And one of the Reds' bench players, Andy Costco, who we had talked about last season, this was his second year with the team, he punches Kirkpatrick, and the brawl was back on. As per usual, Pedro Borbon had to have his part of the brawl. He pinned a guy named Daryl Patterson down and was pulling his hair out in clumps. He bit him, and he tried to tear a piece out of his side, apparently. And, and Patterson had to get a tetanus shot after the, <laughs> after the brawl. So, as a result of this and many other instruments incidents where Borbon had bit somebody or used his teeth on something, they started calling him Dracula. I'm a little concerned he went from uh, tearing a Mets cap apart with his teeth last year to this year uh, actually biting a player uh, on the opposite team. Man, that's Pedro Bourbon for you, Reds Hall of Famer, Pedro Bourbon. July 25th. Now, do you remember anything about this day, Bill, in yeah, Reds history? Yeah, this was a personal milestone for me. This was the day that I passed my permanent driver's test and got my driver's license. And my mom let me take a car, our Galaxy, our Ford Galaxy 500, and myself and my friends, John McGuire and Phil Keller, we went to the ball game. 
And we got down there in the second half of the first game. And we got there. It was the bottom. It was about the, it was somewhere around the bottom of the eighth. And the Reds were down twelve to seven. So the Reds score two on a bench home run. That the Reds get one back in the ninth when Bobby Bonds hit one out. Cesar Geronimo pinch hits for Plummer leading off the ninth, and he strikes out looking. And then the Reds went to work. Danny Dreesen singled. Merv Rettman walked. Rose singled and drove in Dreesen. Joe Morgan grounded out. Rettman scored. Bench singled. Rose scored. Perez comes up with bench at first base and hits a home run to right center field, and the Reds come back and win this game 14-13. to 13. It was an amazing game. And you guys were going nuts. Yeah, we went. We were going berserk. And then the Reds come out with Freddie Norman in the second half or in the second game and win going away on a five nothing complete game by Freddie Norman. It was it was the perfect day for me. I mean, I can't think of many days that were better than that. You get your driver's license, you you have your independence. Where you're able to go out driving the car by yourself for the first time, and you see the Reds win too. And you've been terrorizing other drivers on the road ever since. Shh. August 6th, Johnny Bench with a two-run home run off uh, Los Angeles' Mike Marshall in the 10th. Now, that gave the Reds win, and it was also a personal milestone for Johnny Bench, his 200th career home run. The next day, he hits another two-run homer, which ended up being the game winner for the second straight game. Uh, That was a game where Billingham had thrown a complete game shutout, and at this point, some of the lineup was starting to take shape because Joe Morgan had been pushed up to the number two hole in the lineup behind Pete Rose. So you had Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench, Tony Perez in your top four with Cesar Geronimo getting dropped back down. So the great eight lineup starting to take shape there. You can kind of see it. It's happened at a time where Johnny Bench is having one of his patented hot streaks. Yeah, and we've talked about that before. When when Bench got hot, he was white hot, and this was one of those, one of those series of games. So on August the 19th, Joe Morgan shows why – how good he is and how good he's going to be. He drives in seven runs with a three-run homer in the second and a third run, third inning grand slam in a five-to-two route. Sparky pulled him after three innings. He still drove in seven runs, and the Reds at that <laughs> point had built up a 14 to nothing lead. You know, that, that's a pretty good day when you only play three innings and you hit a you know two home runs and drive in seven. Yeah, that'll, that'll work. That'll work. Mention that in your salary negotiations next year, Joe Morgan. So where are we by the end of August, Bill? Well, by the end of August, the Reds had closed the gap to two and a half to two and a half games, and, and it looks like the season's going to come down to two big series with the Dodgers in, in September, and they would. Yeah, the uh, the Reds were eighty-one and fifty-two at the time, and in second place behind those hated Los Angeles Dodgers. And why don't you tell us about the first of these series, Bill, with the with the Dodgers in September? First one was at Cincinnati. In early September, yeah, the first series, the first series would be at Riverfront, uh, a weekend series. Dodgers come to town. First game's on a Friday night, fifty-one thousand people. And in the first, the Dodgers and, and the Dodgers come right out and jump all over Gullet. They get a double, a walk, and Garvey homers in the first, and, and the Dodgers go on and win three to one. Uh, Sutton and Marshall hold the Reds to the one run, and the Reds are three and a half games behind. Uh, Mike Marshall would win the Cy Young that year and, and come in third in the MVP voting. He was just unbelievable this season. Out of the bullpen, yeah. And the next day, uh, an even uh, a similar crowd the next day for a Saturday day game and uh, a little bit of a different result. Yeah, the Dodgers jump jump out on, on Clay Kirby. He can't even get out of the second inning, so they're down 5 to nothing. But the Reds come back in the game, 
They got a three-run homer out of Davy Concepcion in a second, and then they got two runs, one on a bench homer, and one on a Conce- on Concepcion driving in a tying run in the fifth. So it's two to two, or it's five to five. I'm sorry. In the sixth inning, Morgan sprains his ankle running the bases, but Sparky lets him go to bat in the eighth inning off Mike Marshall. Now this this ankle sprain would be would really kill the Red season because it affected Morgan for the rest of the season. But anyway, in the eighth, Rose walks. And Morgan's at the plate. He starts to swing at Marshall's first pitch, and he falls down. But he got up and hit a two-run homer to win the game 7-5, to five, and the Reds have cut the lead back to two-and-a-half at this point. And we're going to talk more in just a moment about the Joe Morgan sprain that uh, affected the rest of the season. But first, let's finish out this series. The Reds are back to two-and-a-half games, but in the final game of the series, again, 51,465 uh, in attendance, which set the Cincinnati series record, more than 150,000 people. That stood until uh, a Cleveland series in 2000, which drew more. But Jack Billingham had a bad game, uh, which was unusual for him. Dodgers won 7-4, to four, and uh, so the Reds are back to three and a half games out. Tell us a little bit about how that uh, – Joe Morgan obviously was sort of the cog that drove the big red machine so many times. Uh, how that changed the Reds the rest of the way, Bill? Well, the sprained ankle – limited his range in defense and and probably even more important it, it didn't allow him to be effective on the base pass he, he couldn't steal bases or draw those throws and i've talked many times about how important i thought it was to the reds offense to morgan not only stealing bases but unhinging that you know that pitcher on the mound by drawing throws making him pay attention when he was at first base and he, he just couldn't do that with this sprained ankle he just couldn't get he, could, he couldn't draw the attention over there that he that he needed to in September and October, he actually—I mean—he hit six or 263, 449, 509, which isn't bad at all. But and he drew 19 walks, but he only stole four bases. He actually had a worse July when the Reds were really playing well, when he went 210, 335, and 438. But the other thing is, in September and October, he only started 18 games out of 30, and he only played in 22. So when he sprained that ankle, it, it kind of effectively. Close the door on the Reds coming back uh, to the Dodgers, as we'll see. But, uh, you know, he was still in there trying. Yeah, not having Joe Morgan, though, for uh, a 30-year games down the stretch, that's going to hurt any team. So uh, one week later, essentially the following weekend in Los Angeles, the season comes down to this. There's the 13th, 14th, and 15th of September. The Reds are still three and a half games back at that point. But, you know, uh, time is running out. Tell us a little bit about that uh, that series and how the Reds came through. Well, in LA, they, they got big crowds there also. It was over 52,000 in Dodger Stadium. And it was Billingham against uh, Doug Rao, who got in the win the previous Sunday at Riverfront. But he hadn't really pitched all that well. Um, as you said, the Dodgers had a three and a half game lead going into this series. So the Reds go to the top of the eighth, leading three to two, and they broke it open with a three run homer by Concepcion. It was his 12th of the season. He hit it off Charlie Huff, the knuckleballer. And he went on to win 63 with Billingham getting his 19th win and Clay Carroll closing the door with one and a third innings of shutout baseball. And now the lead's down to two two and a half games. And I want to talk a little bit later more about Dave Concepcion, Bill, because another important home run by him, and uh, and we'll mention that again later. Tell us about the following day. It was a night game, actually, on September 14th, a Saturday night game. Yeah, but Saturday night game at Dodger Stadium, they draw 50, almost almost 53,000 for this game, and it's Gullet for the Reds and Jeff Zahn for the Dodgers. 
And Zahn was coming off a complete game shutout of the Braves on the ninth. And looking at box scores and looking at some of the – it looked like he got put in the Dodgers rotation at the end of July for some reason. I don't really know why. And he really pitched pretty well for him down the stretch. But the Reds would jump on him for two in the first. But by the end of the third inning, it would be tied up at two to two. And then in the fourth, Perez leads off with his 27th homer. And in the eighth, Morgan hit his 21st. And Gullett threw seven and a third, allowing only two runs. And again, they got an inning of two-thirds of shutout baseball out of Clay Carroll, and the Reds win this game four to two. The Dodger lead was down to a game and a half. But that was going to be as close as they'd get that season. Oh, I'm starting to get optimistic, Bill. They got it down to a game and a half. I know. And you're right. As close as they get. They lose. Halfway, through, halfway through September, I mean, you got two weeks left, and you're only a game and a half back. And you got to be feeling like you at least got a good shot. Especially after 1973 when they made that second half come back to, uh, to right. win the division. So tell us about Sunday, though. Well, again, a Sunday day game, and, and they draw 52,000 again at Dodger Stadium, and, and it's Freddie Norman against Don Sutton. Uh, scoreless through four, and then the Reds broke through in the fifth. Uh, Cesar Geronimo singled. He stole second. He got bunted to third by Concepcion. Griffey started that day in right field and hit an eighth. He lines out to Davey Lopes at second base. Freddie Norman drove in the first run, and then Sutton walked Rose and Morgan, and the bases are loaded for Johnny Bench, who takes a called third strike, and the Reds lead one to nothing. And that's pretty much the, the end of the good news for the Reds that day. Um, the bottom of the sixth with one out, Freddie Norman hits Bill Buckner, who stole second. Can you imagine Bill Buckner stealing a base? He walked the toy cannon, Jimmy Wynn, a Cincinnati kid who had originally been assigned by the Reds. Uh, then Steve Garvey doubled in Buckner, and, and Wynn goes to third. So Sparky decides he's going to pull Norman and bring in Pedro Bourbon. They intentionally walk Ron Say, and then they get Joe, the catcher, Joe Ferguson, to ground a shortstop. But the Reds only get the force instead of the double play, and Wynn scores, and the Dodgers are up 2-1. to one. So they go to the bottom of the seventh, and that's when the, Red, uh, the Dodgers broke the game open off of, off of Pedro. Uh, he gives up a grand slam to win. Garvey follows with a homer, and the Dodgers walk away with a 7-1 win. Leads back up to two-and-a-half game, and the season's pretty much over for the Reds at this point. Yeah, and, and you wonder whether their spirit was broken, but after losing that last game in Los Angeles, the Reds followed by losing two of three in San Diego and then three of four in San Francisco. So not a successful West Coast road trip just at the time the Reds needed to do something to take a charge in the National League West Division. They did go home and win six in a row over Houston and San Francisco, but at that point it was too little, too late. Two and a half games back with two to play. The Dodgers clinched the division on October 1st. So another chapter of the Reds-Dodgers rivalry comes right down to late September, early October, but the Reds can't do it. It's funny you mentioned that West Coast dive because this is something the Reds would repeat through the end of the 80s where they would really, really struggle on the West Coast. They'd be, they'd be in a pennant race, and they'd go out there, and they'd get shellacked on the West Coast. This happened, it seems like to me in memory, year after year after year. Yeah, 86, 87, 88. I guess 85 through 88. Uh, the Reds finished second place every year, and it seemed like every year a big reason was late in the season. They just couldn't get things done on a West Coast road trip. This might have been the first example of that. And uh, losing it to the Dodgers. Why don't you wrap up the 1974 season for us, Bill? Well, after winning 73 games in or <laughs> after winning 99 games in 73, not 73 games in 99, 
the uh, they they won 98 games the following year, and they ended up four games back in second place. And the Pythagorean uh, theorem for them should have had 96 wins, so they were playing. They played above their heads a little, just a couple of games. They go 617 at home and 593 on the road. April was really the only month that they didn't play real well. Uh, they played 526 ball in, in April. They were 10 and 9. And then after that, the worst month they had was June when they were 17 and 12. So you, you really can't say that they didn't play well. But the, the other thing where the problem was was they only won 6 out of 18 games against the Dodgers. And that'll do it. That'll absolutely do it for the yep. uh, for the Reds. I mean, you gotta, I mean, that was different. Yeah, no question. No question about it. Uh, what else can you tell us? They never ran off any real long winning streaks, but they won 10 of 11 at one point. They won 8 of 9, 6 of 7. They won 6 in a row. They, they drew 2.164 million that year, second in Major League Base, or second in, in of 12 in National League uh, behind the Dodgers. Uh, they won four gold gloves. Bench, Morgan, Concepcion, and Geronimo all won gold gloves, and they would do so for the next four years. And it was the first time since 57 that the Reds captured gold gloves. Uh, Perez, Morgan, Bench, Rose, all were named to the all-star team. Perez was the only one that was a non-starter. And the, the difference, so we're talking about awards, uh, the difference the last two years, the Reds had uh, kind of dominated the uh, one MVP awards the last two years. And in 74, uh, kind of the script is flipped a little bit. The Dodgers not only win the West, they go on to win the pennant. Uh, Steve Garvey of the Dodgers is the National League's most valuable player. Mike Marshall National League Cy Young, as we already discussed, relief pitcher for the Dodgers. So the Dodgers are thinking, hey, this is going to be our, we're going to be the dynasty in the 70s at that point. Now, you mentioned Concepcion winning the gold glove, and we talked earlier about him. Can we talk just a moment about Dave Concepcion? Because I know as I was growing up, Dave Concepcion, is he a Hall of Famer, was something that was talked about uh, all the time. And I remember getting into arguments uh, about the, that particular question uh, years and years ago. Bill, any thoughts on the question of Dave Concepcion? Because it's uh, he's an interesting player in Reds history in that he wasn't the, a superstar on this team, one of the big four, but, man, such a great shortstop for so many years. Well, and I think most people that, that watched baseball in the 70s and, and into the 80s would say that he was one of, if not the best shortstop of his era. Uh, he was the first real artificial turf shortstop. He perfected the one-hop throw to first base from the hole. Became, I think he became a better offensive player than the Reds ever really thought he would be. Played shortstop for the Reds for 18 years. But is he a Hall of Famer? Not in my book. I think he's in the Hall of very, very good. If you compare him to other shortstops that are in the Hall of Fame, he just statistically just doesn't stack up either offensively or defensively. Yeah, you know, the Hall of Fame keeps getting watered down with players like Harold Baines being allowed in. So I've wondered if at some point I'm going to change my... I really want to argue that Dave Concepcion is a, is a Hall of Famer. Uh, you know, it, it that's not necessarily a criticism, though, that he's not a Hall of Famer. You know, just he was really, really good at baseball. Just not quite as good as, as some other people. That's not really a, a criticism. I like this. Uh, it's called a Jaws system that uh, baseball writer Jay Jaffe created. Oh, gosh, uh, 15, 20 years ago, as a means to measure a player's Hall of Fame worthiness. It's the Jaffe War Score System. And it basically compares uh, an individual player with the players at his position who have already been enshrined in uh, the Hall of Fame. 
and uh, they use advanced metrics to account for the variations in offensive levels throughout the game's history. And so it, it kind of looks at uh, how you how you stack up. And for Dave Concepcion, his career wins above replacement is a 40.1. The average Hall of Fame shortstop's career wins above replacement is 67.5, so significantly behind there. They also, the Jaws system looks at the seven-year peak, what his war was, wins above replacement, and his seven-year peak performance. And it was 29.9 for Concepcion, and the average seven-year peak for a Hall of Famer is 43.1. Essentially has Dave Concepcion as the 46th best shortstop in baseball history, which is pretty good when you consider how long baseball has been played and how many players have played shortstop. Uh, but th- there were only 23 shortstops in the Hall of Fame at this point, and they've got Concepcion down uh, behind uh, guys like Raphael Furcal, Andrelton Simmons, uh, Omar Vizquel. And so you know, it's it's a little bit before you get up to guys like uh, Rabbit Mirandal and Phil Rizzuto who are in the Hall of Fame. So he's close. He's really close, but I think you're right. He's probably not a Hall of Famer, is he? No, he's really not. And I, I looked at, I looked at, uh, I've tried to find good comps from the approximately the same era. And Mari Wills is close to Concepcion. Rico Petroselli is close to Concepcion. And and, and nobody, Gary Templeton, uh, who was traded for Ozzy Smith. And, and I've never heard anybody try to make the argument uh, that these guys are Hall of Famers. I, I think... Concepcion gets elevated a little bit because of the team he played on and the guys he played with. And also a note that you had made to me before we recorded here was that you can make a really good argument that he was the best shortstop in his era, but it wasn't a great era. And usually that's one of the things you look at for, uh, you know, is he a Hall of Famer? But uh, just not a great era for shortstops, was it? Yeah, in the National League, you know, I'm not, I'm just going off memory here. The guys, the other shortstops I remember were Boa, Larry Boa in Philadelphia, Bud Harrelson in New York, Don Kessinger for the for the Dodgers. A little later, it was Bill Russell, I think, in uh, or, or through this period, it was Bill Russell who played outfield and shortstop for the Dodgers. Mari Wills was at the tail end of his career. By this point in the set in the early seventies, Ernie Banks had been moved to first base. Uh, Chris Spire for the Giants. There really weren't any guy, and I'm just thinking in the National League because that's what I saw all the time. There really weren't a whole lot of guys that that jumped to your brain when you think you know all time shortstops. But Dave Concepcion, a nine time All Star, won five Gold Gloves, two Silver Sluggers, a fantastic career for the Cincinnati Reds, no question. But here we are. The Reds finish up the season, you know, not where they wanted to be. They did win 98 games, which is, you know, pretty doggone good, but uh, finished four games out in the National League West and no playoffs for the Reds. So real questions were starting to emerge about this team that had been really good for a while, but who, who were they? They were a team that couldn't win the big one. Yeah, that's true. And, and you had to start – their 73 and their 74 numbers team-wise were not much different. I mean, in 73, they averaged 4.57 runs a game. In 74, they averaged 4.76. It was sec- Both of them were second in the league. And the pitching was a little bit better in 73, but not dramatically. The runs allowed per game in 73 was 3.83, and in 74 was 3.87. 
And actually, in, in 74, they were third in the league. In 73, they were fourth in the league. So the, the differences in, in what they did team-wise between 73 and 74 is pretty minuscule. Uh, the biggest problem was had the Dodgers just become a better team at this point. Was this team as good as everyone seemed to think? They had won the division in 70, 72, and 73. No World Series wins. A disappointing loss to the, the Mets in the playoffs in 73. And uh, at that point, they were called the best team never to win a world champion. That was something that was actually said at that time, which is uh, amazing to think about this uh, big red machine. Best team never to win a world championship. The, the other question that comes into to play here is, and maybe today as we're thinking about it, if, if the modern day team wins 98 games, they're going to make the playoffs, first of all. And even back then, though, could you really be disappointed in the in a team that won 98 games? I mean, you know. Yeah, it, it's it's hard to believe now that, that people were complaining about a team that won 98 games. And and there really wasn't a reason to have a a, a scapegoat for the for this season. I mean, nobody had the big MVP years, but nobody tanked either. And and the only weakness they seemed to have was at third base. Uh Dreesen, he played 150 games and he and he hit pretty well down there. He, he had a 281 347, 400 season, and his OPS plus was 110, and it was only his second year in the big leagues. But the biggest problem was he made 26 errors at third base. Yeah, it was looking increasingly like he would not be able to stick at third base, and so some some rumors started to to, to go around about uh, what the Reds might look to do as the winter meetings approach, didn't they, Bill? Yeah, as the winter meetings started coming up, it, it, it looked more and more like the Reds were going to look to trade Tony Perez. Can you remember what your thoughts were about the Reds at this time? Were you as disappointed as it seems in retrospect a lot of people were? I wouldn't say disappointed, but frustrated was probably a better a better way of, of saying it for me. Uh, you'd watch this team. I mean, you, know, I, you couldn't watch it, but I bet I listened to half the games, three-quarters of the games on the radio and whatever they were on television, and you knew how good this team was. And they just couldn't get over the hump. Well, everyone thought this team had as much talent as anyone in either league, um, but there were real questions about whether they could actually get over that hump and, and win a championship. And really, it seemed at this time like Sparky Anderson's Reds just couldn't win the big one. The question was, would they ever? Thank you for listening to Building the Machine, a brand new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. To get each episode of the show delivered to you automatically, subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio. You can find us at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Essentially, wherever you find podcasts, we're there. Any of the facts, figures, and anecdotes from today's episode came from BaseballReference.com and the book's Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder, Big Red Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arardi, Ball Four by Jim Bowden, and The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Cincinnati Reds by Chris Garber. Until next time, for Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying, So long, everyone. So long, everyone.